Part 2, Chapter 3 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ross Moore, Indianapolis. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Doctor's Conversion. I wish I could introduce the old doctor in some more human fashion. Pen and ink are all very well in their way, but their way is not the best way, and no way but the best way is worthy of the doctor. You need to see him, to hear his voice, to feel his hand clasp, and to breathe the atmosphere that is generated by his presence. I can never hope, through this lame medium, to give any impression of his bulky, though not ungainly, form. His venerable countenance, his silvery hair, his sparkling eyes, his deep, rich, musical voice. It is worth a mile's walk on a wet day just to hear him laugh. An evening with the doctor is one of the luxuries of life. As everybody knows, Dr. John Horner is the beloved and honored minister of the church at Willoughby Street. He lives in the old stone, ivy-covered house behind the church, and the gloomy walk under the chestnut trees to his door has been well worn by a constant stream of eager visitors. Young people have walked along this shady path at the very summit of their felicity, and older folk have sometimes carried along at hearts as heavy as lead. For the doctor has been here now for over thirty years. He has watched the members of the Willoughby Street congregation grow up from childhood. Mr. Edward Westbrook, the secretary of the church, and his wife are both of them conscious of silver in their hair. But the doctor likes to remind them of a certain Sunday, in the early days of their courtship, when they sat together in church for the first time. The doctor has shared with them all the joys and sorrows of their happy wedded life. When each of the children was but a few days old, he stood reverently by the bedside and breathed upon mother and babe his benediction. When, fifteen years ago, Lily, the only daughter, a fair but frail girl, drooped and died, he, by his very presence, radiated comfort and courage in the stricken home. When business affairs are not going just to Mr. Westbrook's liking, he always says that a chat with the doctor is as bracing as a tonic or a holiday. I always go back to the office whistling next morning, he says, when he tells you about it. And when things at home are causing headache or heartache, it is to the doctor that Mrs. Westbrook always carries her worries. Somehow or other, she says, he always seems to understand. He listens to all that I say, and talks it over with me afterwards, just as if the affairs we are discussing were his own. I have often seen his eyes moisten when we have been in trouble. But by the time that he has talked with me and prayed with me, I always feel that the worst is over, and that everything will be sure to come right after all. Any of the scores of men and women whom you may see sitting with their young people in the stately old pews at Willoughby Street would speak of the doctor in exactly the same way. It is always a congenial topic of conversation. In every allusion that they make to him, there is a singular mingling of reverence and endearment. The doctor has made himself the father of all his people, and in the process he has converted his pulpit into a throne. For years after I met first the doctor, I took it for granted that he had always been of the temper that we all so greatly honored and so much admired. But one evening I made a discovery that quite astounded me. I had undertaken to preach some special sermons at Whitlington, and was met at the railway station by the minister of the church. After a cheerful tea and a short stroll, we settled down to an evening by the fireside. 
My hostess and her daughter busied themselves with their knitting. The minister and I just talked. I learned with surprise that he and the doctor were at college together. Instantly, the current of our conversation set steadily along that channel. The theme was of mutual interest and seemed almost inexhaustible. All at once, I made my discovery. Yes, remarked my host, leaning back in his chair meditatively. I have never seen a greater change overtake the minister than the change that came over John Horner after he went to Willoughby Street. Indeed, I replied. And in what way? Oh, when next you see him, you must ask him to tell you the story of his conversion, as he calls it. As I told you, we were in college together, and we settled at about the same time in towns not far apart. He at Oakhampton, and I at Troford. John was eight years at Oakhampton before he was called to Willoughby Street, and he was in hot water all the time. In hot water? I exclaimed in astonishment. In those days, my host continued, John Horner was the greatest controversialist in our part of the country. He was always pitching into somebody. Once or twice a week, when you picked up the paper, you could rely upon finding a letter signed John Horner, protesting against some local proposal or exposing the fallacy of somebody's argument. In almost every sermon, he launched some violent attack or brought some scathing indictment. In such wordy warfare, he was a most skillful swordsman. He knew how to thrust and how to parry. He was continually debating, contending, disputing. He was never happy unless some fierce storm of controversy was raging around him. Whenever he came to see me, he would rub his hands and ask, with eyes sparkling, and all his body in a ferment of excitement, whether I had seen his letter in the courier. I've left him, he would exclaim, without a leg to stand on. He'll never dare to reply. To the religious papers, also, John sent his terrible philippics. He was the heart and soul of many a heated disputation. People knew, as soon as they saw his signature at the foot of a communication, that things were likely to be lively, and editors welcomed his contributions for the sake of the simmer of excitement that they imparted to columns that were too often unconscionably dull. John gloried in a fight. I told him once that he reminded me of George MacDonald's Waysome Carl. There come a man to Ortunin, and a Waysome Carl was he. Muckily spied and muckily spack, but the o'ercome o' his song. Whatever it said, was I the same. There's none ye but's a wrong. You're a wrong, and a wrong, and a together a wrong. But there's no a man aboot the tune, but's I together a wrong. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I could see that John resented them. But he was on his defense in a moment. His eyes flashed. True religion, he exclaimed, is virile, militant, aggressive. The whole spirit of apostolic evangelism, he maintained, was in the nature of a tremendous and sustained contention. Most of us, he declared, are too mealy-mouthed. Then, warming to his subject, he crushed me beneath a perfect avalanche of argument. He overwhelmed me with an impressive pageant of ponderous authorities. I cowered before the fusillade and cannonade to which he pitilessly subjected me. Most heartily did I regret having had the temerity, on even a minor point, to differ from him. In those days John kept the whole town in a ferment, but you must ask him, when you go back, to tell you all about it. Say, I told you to. The opportunity came more quickly than I could have expected. 
A few days later, I was strolling through the park. I crossed the lawns and made my way down to the lake, and standing at the water's edge, watching the children feeding the swans, I saw the doctor himself. He greeted me warmly and led me to a seat under a giant elm, and we sat there enjoying the glorious expanse of green grass, noble forestry, and shimmering water that, like a panorama, spread itself out before us. My opportunity was not long in coming. He asked me about my visit to Whitlington. Had I seen his old friend there? And how were things going with him? I told him of the services, of the affairs of the Whitlington household, and then of the talk beside the fire. As soon as I had mentioned it, I saw that I had unwittingly revived an unpleasant memory. A cloud passed over his face, and he sat in silence, apparently looking at the swans. Then, all at once, he broke into laughter, laughter that had a little undertone of sadness, and began. "'Ah, well!' he exclaimed. "'An old minister ought not to be above telling a young minister of his early blunders, and that was certainly one of mine. At Oakhampton I indulged pretty freely my insatiable fondness for controversy, and I suppose I was fairly clever at it. But it was a mistake for all that.' It doesn't pay, my dear fellow, it doesn't pay. I call those my Jack Horner days. He laughed again, more heartily this time. I don't suppose, he went on, I don't suppose the nursery rhyme was intended as a personal attack upon myself, although it takes liberties with my name. But it describes me to a nicety. I was everlastingly putting in my thumb and pulling out a plum and saying, What a good boy am I! I spent seven years in this way, and then a thing happened that set me thinking. I was summoned one evening to visit a man who was dying. He was not a member of my own congregation, but his minister was out of town, and he expressed a desire to see me. I went to him, reminded him of the immutable foundations of our everlasting hope, prayed with him, and was coming away filled with those emotions which every minister experiences under such conditions. As I gently clasped the dying man's hand to take farewell, he looked into my face with a strange and wistful sadness and observed, I wish I had understood you better years ago. Indeed, I exclaimed, and in what way? And then he told me that it was by means of my ministry that he had been led into the kingdom and service of Jesus Christ. He had come to the church one evening. I had preached a fervent evangelistic sermon. His attention was riveted. His soul was stirred. He had found his way to the Savior. I came back the following Sunday he went on to say, but you were engaged in attacking the proposals of the Public Buildings Committee, and the following Sunday you were exploding the arguments of a certain Mr. Clinton. All that you said was very good and very true, and it was said with moderation and with judgment. But, somehow, I felt that I could not nourish my newly found faith on that kind of thing. So I went the following Sunday to St. John's, and eventually joined that congregation. But as I listened just now to all that you said, and followed you in prayer, I could not help feeling what a gain it would have been to me had I understood you more perfectly. The doctor rose from my side, and strolled a few feet in the direction of the lake, pretending to be interested in some of the elm leaves which he picked up, autumn leaves that had come fluttering down, whilst he told me his story. He tossed the leaves away again, and resumed his seat. He did not mean it as a rebuke, he went on. He merely intended it as a kind acknowledgment of my services and as a personal regret. But coming from the lips of a dying man, 
It affected me more than anything I had heard for years. This all happened on the Tuesday. On the Friday I buried him, and during those days I could think about nothing else. He paused, and again seemed to be watching the swans, which, by this time, were out among the water lilies in the center of the lake. During those days, he continued, everything that I read and everything that I heard seemed to bear in some strange way upon that bedside conversation. It mattered little what book I took down from my shelves. Theology, history, science, fiction, it was all the same. It seemed bent upon rebuking my contentious spirit. You know how, when one dominating idea holds all your mind, everything that you see and hear seems to stand related to it. So it was with me. I was reading, at the time, an old classic by Isaac Barrow, Newton's famous preceptor. I had scarcely opened the book that morning before the old professor began on this very theme. Avoid controversy at any cost, he says. The truth contended for is not worth the passion expended upon it. The benefits of the victory do not atone for the prejudices aroused in the combat. Goodness and virtue may often consist with ignorance and error, seldom with strife and discord. With a heavy heart, I laid the volume aside, and took down Richard Baxter, who first taught me how to be a minister. But, would you believe it? I had not got through half a dozen pages before my old master burst out upon me. Another fatal hindrance, he said, to a heavenly walk and conversation is our too frequent disputes. A disputatious spirit is a sure sign of an unsanctified spirit. They are usually men least acquainted with the heavenly life who are the most violent disputers about the circumstantiality of religion. Yea, though you were sure that your opinions were true, yet when the chiefest of your zeal is turned to these things, the life of grace soon decays within. The least controverted truths are usually the most weighty and of most necessary and frequent use to our souls. I felt that my old master had but rubbed brine into my smarting wounds, and I returned him sadly to the shelf. That very afternoon I had occasion to dip into John Wesley's journal, and under date October 9, 1741, I stumbled upon this. I found Mr. Humphreys with Mr. Simpson. They immediately fell upon their favorite subject, on which, when we had disputed two hours and were just where we were at first, I begged we might exchange controversy for prayer. We did so, and then parted in much love, about two in the morning. In sheer despair, I returned Wesley to his place, and forsook the theologians altogether. I picked up a volume of Darwin which, newly purchased, lay uncut on the desk. But to my amazement, he was harping on the same old theme. I rejoice, he said, that I have avoided controversies, and this I owe to Lyell, who many years ago, in reference to my geological works, strongly advised me never to get entangled in a controversy, as it rarely did any good, and caused a miserable loss of time and temper. I put the volume back on the desk, and, fancying that relief would surely come with fiction, I slipped a novel into my pocket and, after tea, went out into the fields. It happened to be Mark Rutherford's Revolution in Tanner's Lane. Imagine my consternation on finding one of the characters, Zachariah Coleman, talking on this very subject. No controversy can be of any use, he says. It leads to everlasting debate, and it is not genuine debate, 
for nobody really ranges himself alongside his enemy's strongest points. It encourages all sorts of sophistry, becomes more maneuvering, and saps people's faith in the truth. I went back to the house. How I spent the rest of the evening does not matter much to you or anybody else, but from that day to this I have never entangled myself in controversy again. It was getting chilly, the dusk was falling, and we could no longer see the swans. We rose from the seat under the elm, and I saw the doctor to his home. As I walked back along the path under the chestnut trees, I thought of all that Mr. Westbrook and others had told me of the doctor's long, rich, fruitful ministry at Willoughby Street, and I felt that the vow that he registered on that memorable night, more than thirty years ago, had been well kept and amply vindicated. End of Part 2, Chapter 3